that uh, he comes for the Navigator Conference, and we participate in that in some regard. And so we're uh, thrilled with the conference each year as we're blessed. And um, I was telling the people at the first service that the years seem to go so fast uh, that it seems that Jerry comes more often than once a year, but then I realize that we're involved with him as we read his books and we talk about the things which he shared with us. So we're uh, delighted uh, once again. Uh, that he is with us to bless. So let me pray, and then Jerry will come. Father in heaven, we are grateful for our dear friend, and we're thankful that you give him strength to continue the work to which you've called him. And we thank you that you've given him um, wisdom, discernment uh, into your word in such a way that uh, he is able, as he lives it out, to also uh, speak it out and to share with us these insights from your word which you've given to him and so we're grateful we've grown because of it Uh, we've come to know christ better because of it to live worthy to live pleasing to him and so we pray now that you would grant grace to jerry as he preaches to us as we listen that we would listen well and that that which is true would penetrate deep in us and cause us to live in a way that is pleasing to you. This, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Bill, and good morning to you. It is always a delight, and uh, I look forward to this every year. This is one of the few places that's on an annual schedule, and we're just delighted about that for Chain and myself to be here with you folks. Our Navigator Collegiate Director here at KU, Matt, reminded us on Friday night that this is the 12th year of our weekend conference in February. And I know that I was here for a couple of men's retreats prior to that. So we go back a long ways. In fact, uh, most of you probably were not around when uh, this church was meeting in the school. Well, I was. I was the speaker there a couple of times. And so It's always a privilege to be back with you. Um, I woke up uh, Thursday morning. We flew over Thursday morning in order to speak at the NAV night at the campus on Thursday evening, and I woke up with a sore throat, and I thought, this is not good, because I knew that the sore throat for me is usually a forerunner of a cold, and uh, I've been sort of holding it at bay all weekend, but this morning it caught up with me. So if I have to wipe my nose uh, during the service, I beg your indulgence for that. And God's in control of coals and everything else, and so we just look to him for what he brings into our lives. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, this morning we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer. So let me read that, even though I'm sure most of you could simply recite it But I'm going to read it for us uh, before we get into what Jesus is saying to us uh, through this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This prayer easily divides into two parts. 
verses 9 and 10 have to do with God's interest that his name would be hallowed, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as in heaven. And, of course, the second part, beginning with verse 11, give us this day our daily bread, has to do with our interest, both our temporal or material interest, as well as our spiritual interest. Now, the fact that Jesus instructs us to pray, first of all, for God's glory, because when we pray that his name would be hallowed, we're praying that God would be glorified. Uh, the fact that Jesus instructs us to pray, first of all, for that, indicates that this is the priority in our prayers um, as, we, as we pray to God. And this, of course, is consistent with uh, that first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the answer to that uh, question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And uh, so if we're to glorify God, then our first priority in prayer is to pray that God's name would be hallowed, that God uh, in all of his attributes and his actions would be glorified. Having said that about God's priority, I want to start with verse 11. I want to start with uh, give us today, or this day, our daily bread, because this is where most of us live, and admittedly, it's the focus of so much of our prayers. We, we are very keenly aware of our needs, and so we, we pray for those. I take the phrase, give us today our daily bread, to stand for all of our, what I call, our temporal, physical needs. Whether it is the supply of our daily food, whether it's... Uh, recovery from illness, whether it's uh, uh, landing a new job, if we've lost our job, whether it's safety and travel, uh, whatever it might be. Um, for me, one of my, my most consistent prayers, I have to tell you, is that I might find the things that I've misplaced in the house. I, I'm one of these people who, uh, ideally, I would like to have a place for everything and everything in its place, but my problem is I don't have a place for everything, and particularly papers and message notes and these kinds of things. And so they sort of get stacked up on the top of the desk, and then I'm piling, going through that and trying to find that missing uh, whatever it might be. I say that to say that we, we should pray for the very mundane, the very ordinary things of life. When we woke up Thursday morning, there was about an inch of snow on the ground. It had snowed during the night, but it stopped snowing. Nevertheless, we knew that the roads would be somewhat slick. And so uh, Jane and I prayed. We, we left the house at 445, and we prayed that we would get safely to the airport despite the slippery roads. We prayed that the flight from Colorado Springs to Denver would be on time so that we could make connection with the flight from Denver to Kansas City. And, and I say that to say, you know, we, in fact, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. And we should pray about everything. We should pray for all of these temporal needs in our lives. As it turned out, we, we live about a mile from Interstate 25, which takes us uh, in the direction of the airport. 
And uh, so we got on the interstate, and we'd gone perhaps a mile, and all of a sudden a car in front of us did a couple of donuts, you know, just spinning around like this. And uh, at one point we're looking straight into his headlights. And uh, But the Lord enabled us. He, he managed to get to the side, and we got over in the left lane. Uh, fortunately, no one was coming in that left lane. And we were able to get safely by, and so we thanked the Lord that he had answered that first prayer, at least so far, to get us safely to the airport. Now, I, I say that because this is where we live every day. All of us have needs, whatever it might be. We have these needs, they're right there in front of us, and Jesus is inviting us when he says, pray, give us this day our daily bread. He is, in fact, inviting us to pray for all of our physical and temporal needs. Now, why does he invite us to do that? Because when we pray, give us today our daily bread, or Lord, bring us safely to the airport, or Father, may our flight to Denver be on time, we are acknowledging God's sovereign control over all the events of our lives, in fact, of all of the events of his universe, and we are acknowledging our dependence on him. Now, I dare say that most of us do not pray regularly, give us today our daily bread. We simply go to the supermarket and buy it, along with the milk and the meat and the vegetables and the fruit and everything else that you buy at the supermarket. And so God is saying to us, he's not only inviting us to pray about our physical and temporal needs, but he is saying to us, you need to remember that ultimately you are dependent upon me. We know that all over the world today, there are many people who can't go to the supermarket and buy food. They go to bed hungry. And there are people here in our, in our own country who, for one reason or another, are homeless or things like that. And, and perhaps some of you, in being in between jobs and so forth, have, have come to the place where the cupboard is perilously bare. But whether or not there's plenty of food in the cupboard or whether or not it's bare, we are dependent upon God in all of uh, the things that he provides for us. Acts uh, 17.25, Paul says he himself gives all mankind, that's believer and non-believer, all mankind, life and breath and everything. Ultimately, everything that we have comes from God. And so when we pray, give us today our daily bread, we are acknowledging our dependence upon him to supply all that we need, whether it's food or recovery from illness, or safety in travel, whatever it might be, we are dependent upon him. And so Jesus invites us, and he in fact more than invites us, he instructs us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Now God does this through what we call his providence and his common grace. Let me define those two expressions. First of all, God's providence is his sovereign control directing and orchestrating all events in his universe for his glory to accomplish his purposes and for the for our good. God uh, con- controlling, directing, and orchestrating 
Now, why do I put the word orchestrating in there? Because God has to, in directing all of the circumstances of his universe, uh, he has to take into consideration all of us. Now, the farmer prays for rain, and God answers his prayer. But lo and behold, that happens to rain on the 4th of July when you've been planning a picnic. And so God has to take everybody into consideration, and that's why I say he orchestrates all for his glory and for our good. Common grace denotes God's kindness and providential care of all of his creation, regardless of the spiritual state of the people. Jesus expresses this very succinctly in Matthew 5.45 when he said, For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now, as we think about God's providential care in his common grace, I'm sure that right away we think of natural disasters such as the earthquake in Haiti, and we ask, well, does God send that? And let me just say that ultimately all what I call natural evil, as well as all moral evil, now the the distinction between those, natural evil would be floods and earthquakes and tornadoes and droughts and these kinds of things. Moral evil would be that which is uh, done by people when we sin against one another. But God is in control of all of this, although... We have to say that all of both the moral evil and the situational evil can be traced back to Adam's sin in the garden when God cursed the earth. That's why we have the earthquakes as well as the droughts and these things. And that's why we all sin because we inherited Adam's sinful nature. And so we don't blame God. We, you know, if we want to blame anybody, we look back to Adam. But even that was under God's control. And so we say, well, why did God send the earthquake in Haiti? And the question is, why didn't he send one to Colorado Springs? You know, we we should look at God's providential and uh, care and his common grace and realize how blessed we are most of the time. And, And we know that these natural disasters are the exception and not the rule. So God does care for his creation. Why he allows these natural disasters, is, or the reason for that, is known only to him. But uh, we don't want to go down that path because it basically diverts us from Jesus' prayer. But uh, as I've said, our prayer for temporal needs is, first of all, to acknowledge our dependence upon him. Among other things, prayer is acknowledgement of our absolute dependence upon God. And failure to pray is a failure to acknowledge our dependence on him. Secondly, prayer is an opportunity to express our thanksgiving as we see God's working and God's provision. An illustration for this is found in... uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 1, and uh, I know that I've alluded to this passage before in one of the Sundays that I've been here, <clears throat> but let me review it for you. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 
Beginning in verse 8, the Apostle Paul said, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. That's a pretty bad situation that he was in. But then he goes on to say, "But But this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Oftentimes, God puts us in these difficult situations where, as the expression goes, we have no place to look but up. We realize that we're totally dependent upon him to provide or to deliver or to do whatever the need might be. And then Paul said, he delivered us. In this case, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And then he said, you also must help us by prayer. So Paul not only prayed, but he was asking other people to pray. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The second reason that God wants us to pray is when he answers prayer, then we return to him our thanksgiving and our praise for what he has done in providing for us or or answering whatever our need might be. And you folks, of course, have witnessed a very um, mighty expression of God's answering of prayer in the case of Karen. And uh, as I understand that, that you just spontaneously mobilized yourselves to pray and much prayer was offered not only here, but uh, I know I was in Philadelphia when I heard and I joined in with you. And then God has, has in a wonderful way answered that prayer and so we give praise to him. So the purpose of prayer, first of all, is to acknowledge our dependence and secondly, that we might give thanks to him so that many thanks will be given. So, excuse me. We ask the question, how many people have to pray before God answers? Does God count noses and God checking off and says, okay, we're up to a hundred people that are praying, so now I will answer that prayer? No. When God answered our prayer for safety last Thursday morning, only Jane and I prayed. Now, I know I learned after the fact that we had a friend living in Indianapolis who the night before, knowing that we were going on this trip, had prayed for our safety. So there, was, there were three of us, but not a hundred by any means. So God is not counting noses. So why does he want many people to pray? Because he wants many people to acknowledge our dependence upon him, and he wants many people to thank him and give him praise. And so we should ask people to pray for us. And God then is glorified when um, the prayers are answered. Now, the next thing, and I'm going to turn back now to Matthew chapter 6. In verses 12 and 13, we're still praying for ourselves, or he's teaching us to pray for ourselves, but here he changes the subject from our temporal needs to our spiritual needs. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Again, we express our dependence upon him. We, now, the Bible is what we call a progressive revelation. And at the time Jesus taught the disciples to pray this prayer, he had not yet gone to the cross. The Apostle Paul, writing after the fact, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, and the fuller understanding of the gospel, could say such words as we see in Colossians chapter 2, He has forgiven us all our sins. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord no longer counts against him. But even now, we should pray for the forgiveness because in asking God for our forgiveness, for forgiveness, we again are acknowledging that we are dependent upon him for the forgiveness, even though this forgiveness has been provided for us through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who redeemed us from all of our sin. But nevertheless, we are dependent upon him. And I think if there's any one thought I would like for you to carry away today, it's the thought that prayer is, first of all, an expression of dependence. The problem is we don't like dependence, do we? We want to just sort of make it on our own. And to acknowledge that we are helpless, that, you know, ultimately we couldn't just go to the supermarket and buy the food or whatever it might be. And that we're dependent upon him and upon the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And so even as we have done this morning, confessed our sins in a, in a congregational way, in a broad, uh, general way, and as we had those moments of private confession, I trust that each of us um, looked in our hearts and saw our own particular needs for which we need to experience Christ's forgiveness. And then he says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now this one is rather difficult to understand because it suggests that God is leading us into temptation. First of all, we need to understand that uh, God cannot tempt us. The scripture says, God cannot sin, neither can he tempt anyone to sin. We sin out of our own choices. However, all of us have particular sins that we are uniquely vulnerable to. For one person, it might be anger. For another person, it might be discouragement. For another person, it might be anxiety. Uh, whatever it might be, all of us know that there are certain sins, what I call respectable sins, you know, the sins that are not going to get us disciplined out of the church or in jail or something like that. And we, we all know that we have sins or temptations that we are particularly vulnerable to. And Jesus here is teaching us to pray that God will not lead us into circumstances where we uh, are presented with those temptations that we're vulnerable to. I've heard R.C. Sproul say that there's no sin of which I am not capable of committing given the right set of circumstances. And so we realize that we are vulnerable, and this prayer is an acknowledgement that we are vulnerable, and it's an asking of God that he would not put us into those positions or situations where we would respond to that particular temptation. Now, having addressed our needs, I want to return to verses 9 to 10 and look at uh, the prayer we are to pray for God's glory and God's interest 
three requests, and there's an overlapping in these. First of all, that God's name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You might say that the first prayer, hallowed be your name, is the basic prayer. That's referring to the fact that God's name would would be reverenced and glorified. To to hallow something is to set it apart. And so God uh, wants to be reverenced and honored. Uh, The biblical term is the fear of God, which does not mean to be afraid of God, but rather it means to hold God in awe and reverence. And so Jesus is teaching us that we should pray, first of all, that God's name would be hallowed or God's name would be glorified. Now, how is this going to happen? It's going to happen through the extension of Christ's kingdom. And so the second part of that prayer is your kingdom come. Now, this has both a present and a future application. The future application is that we are waiting for the final consummation of God's kingdom for the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells and when Jesus will deliver up the kingdom unto the Father and that we will live in that kingdom for all eternity. But the present application, and I'm sure that this is what was primarily in Jesus' mind because he is praying for the extension of the kingdom into the hearts of men and women. It's the spread of God's kingdom throughout the world. One commentator, in commenting on this phrase, Your kingdom come, wrote these words, In the history of missions, it has been demonstrated again and again that the coming of the reign of God into human hearts requires earnest prayer. So we're to pray for the extension of God's kingdom. And this means we're to pray for the success of God's worldwide missions program. And so we should pray. And here I want to give you some specific instruction and application. We should pray for the fulfillment of the Great Commission. If you've not heard that expression, the Great Commission, and I dare say that most of you have. I mean, if you've come to grace, you're well taught. Uh, but the great, that term is used to apply to Matthew 28, 18 to 20, where Jesus says, All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of this age. Now, That term, this age, is very important because it's the age we're living in right now. And it says to us that Jesus intends that the Great Commission be fulfilled in this age, not in some future age, but in this age. Whatever your eschatological view, by that I mean whatever your view of the end times and of prophecy and these kinds of things might be, Jesus is talking about the present age. And he's saying to, to us, go and make disciples. And lo, I'm with you to this, in this present age, to the end of this age. Now, there are various ways that all of us can have a part in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Obviously, some go cross-culturally. Um, 
Others of us support those who have gone through our prayers and our financial means. But one of the ways that all of us can and should have a part in the fulfillment of the Great Commission is through prayer. As has been said before, if you go to the mission field, you can only go to one country. But through prayer, you can go to any country in the world. And so one of the chief means that you and I can have as far as a part in the Great Commission is through our prayers for the fulfillment of that commission. And I want to give you two passages of Scripture that you can use to pray over toward the fulfillment of the Great Commission. The first one is God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 18. Now, the context of that promise is God's command to Abraham to go to this mountain and offer his, his son uh, Isaac on the altar. And you, of course, know that story that God intervened. He didn't intend that um, Abraham offer Isaac, but he wanted to test Abraham's commitment and faith. And after Abraham had passed that test, God said to him, In your seed... May I make an editorial comment about that word, or cedar offspring? The Apostle Paul identifies that offspring very specifically in Galatians chapter 3 as the Lord Jesus Christ. So we could read that, that God said to Abraham, in your offspring, namely the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's to come, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's a promise that God made to Abraham 4,000 years ago or so, more or less. That promise has not yet been fulfilled. We look at what the missiologists call the 1040 window, which is 10 degrees north latitude to 40 degrees north, which basically, uh, if you think of it, it covers North Africa, all of the Middle East, all of Southern Asia, maybe fudging a little and getting up into China. But it's the Muslim world of over a billion people. It's the Hindu world of three-quarters of a billion people. It's all the Buddhist world. It's all the communist world in China and Southeast Asia. That's what we call the 1040 window. And we know that there's yet much work to be done. And you and I can, can contribute to that work by praying that God will fulfill his promise. I use the word plead. We plead the promise of God. God, you promised Abraham that through your son, the Lord Jesus, that all the nations will be blessed. Because the peoples there are not just political entities, which we think of today when we think of the nation of China or the nation of Russia or the nation of Venezuela. But the real meaning there is ethnic or people groups. And all the groups in the earth whether it's a hundred thousand or a billion, all of them, God has said, will be touched by the gospel. And we know that there's yet much work to be done. And so we should pray for the fulfillment of that, that the gospel will penetrate all of these ethnic groups. The second passage that I want to call your attention to is Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28. Now, many of you will recognize that Psalm 22 is what we call a messianic psalm. 
And it is probably the psalm which is most quoted in the New Testament regarding Christ's crucifixion. Uh, You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Christ's prayer of dereliction on the cross. And he is quoting Psalm 22.1. And so we might say that Psalm 22 begins with Christ on the cross. But in verses 27 and 28... It ends with Christ on the throne. This is what it says. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. That's what we might call the Lordship of Christ. When Jesus said, teach teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, he's talking about his kingship. This is the extension of his kingdom. Remember that kingdom, by definition, is a reign. And when Jesus says, pray that God's kingdom will come, he's praying that that Christ's reign (coughs) will exist in the hearts of more and more people. That all of those ethnic groups in in that so-called 1041, as well as other places. Europe, for example, is spiritually barren today. And so we pray that God's kingdom will come all over the world. And just as we pray, Lord, would you fulfill (coughs) your promise to Abraham? Would you fulfill this prophecy in Psalm 22, 27, and 28? And so the application that I would like to make to you today is twofold. First of all, Rejoice in the fact that God has not only given us the opportunity, but in effect he has commanded us because Jesus says, pray, give us today our daily bread. He wants us to pray for all of our temporal needs. So never feel that you are being selfish or anything like that when you pray for your temporal needs, whatever they might be, or when you pray for the needs of your friends loved ones and fellow members of the church and missionaries that are serving in other parts of the world. Jesus encourages us to pray for those temporal needs, the needs of our daily lives. But the second application that I want to make and encourage you in is to get beyond your temporal needs and the temporal needs of your family and friends and so forth and to pray for God's kingdom, for the extension of his kingdom, that his name would be glorified, that, that the extension of his kingdom would grow so that it would, Jesus would reign as Lord in more and more hearts. And then, of course, the upshot of that is his, is his kingdom is extended, then his will is being done in more and more in the lives of people. So continue to pray. What I know all of us do is pray about our temporal needs. But along with that, pray for God's kingdom, God's interests. I'm just encouraging you to have a balance in your prayer life. To remember that God's interests even exceed our interests. Continue to pray for your own needs. But continue to pray that God will be glorified. Shall we pray? Our Father, we 
come to you and we thank you that you so love the world, this world of people who are living in either passive or active rebellion against you. You so love the world that you sent your Son to live and to die in our place so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Father, thank you for this. And thank you for the fact that having sent your Son to address our deepest eternal spiritual needs, that through him you also invite us to look to you to supply our temporal needs. Father, enable us, I pray today, to hold both of these truths, both of these types of requests, in a proper, balanced relationship in our lives, so that your will would be done and our needs would be met. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.